This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madeira, California. Our episode today focuses on the remorse felt by both Peter and Judas following their betrayals of Jesus, found in Matthew 26, 69 through 2710. Together, we will be discussing our role in reconciling the world to God. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizano Podcast. Back with you again this week as we continue our, our journey and working through Matthew. Um, as a quick reminder, last week we focused on uh, the arrest of Jesus and his subsequent appearance before the Sanhedrin, uh, which is found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 68. And with that, we discussed the importance of preparation in order that we might live as Jesus lived. Um, This week, we're going to be pushing forward, pressing on, uh, looking at Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 69 through chapter 27, verse 10, where we're going to look at um, Peter's denial of Jesus and Judas's response to his own betrayal of Jesus. And uh, I believe uh, with that, today we have Derek reading for us. So Derek, would you mind reading Matthew 26, 69 through 2710? Yeah. So verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you are talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, He was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. All right. Thank you for reading that for us, Derek. Um, Let's... Just jump right in. I, I mean, I, I know this is on the heels of um, Jesus essentially being condemned before the Sanhedrin, and so now they're working diligently to try to figure out how to 
um, follow through with what they think should be happening to him. Um, and we're seeing just two responses from, from two of his disciples. And so let's, let's see where this takes us. What, what are we seeing? So the, the first thing that I recognize is Peter's distancing from himself from Jesus through his d- denying who Jesus is, and in his physical body, he's distancing himself from Jesus, moving further and further away. And so um, it's almost as if this is the physical representation of the scattering of the flock that, that Jesus just talked about a few verses ago. Yeah, I mean, all everybody else had already been gone, but Peter, to this point, seemed like even though he was not like right at Jesus' side, he hadn't taken off yet. And yet here, in the midst of his denial, you begin to see his movement, like you said, his movement away from from Jesus, and not just verbally stating it, but physically separating himself. Um, because when you first start, like we're... He's still in the, when you go back to what we talked about last week, like he's sitting in the courtyard of the high priest. Um, And so that's where we would gather that this servant girl came up to him to, to say this initial like questioning of his association with Jesus. And then he moves to the gateway. And so he's just like, after he denies, he's like, shoot, I got to get out of here and, and starts, starts kind of fading away to the back. Uh, with this movement away, the thing that caught my attention the most uh, is actually Peter's third denial, and not because it's that third denial that like fulfills what Jesus like said was going to happen, but because of the extent that he goes to. As I was doing some reading about this, um, it, I mean, there, there's a few different options of what it could mean that he called down curses. Um, but this idea that he publicly was, was cursing and swearing that he was not connected with Jesus, um, from what I read indicates that essentially Peter, even if he was associated with Jesus by him doing this was publicly severing all ties associated with Jesus to the point of there being no way back, uh, it, culturally speaking, not necessarily Jesus speaking, because we we know how this story ends. But culturally speaking, what Peter does here with his third denial severs all ties and says there is no way back. Um, and so, like Peter, Peter is going all in on this rejection of Jesus and this moving away from Jesus. And so, it's not just I know, I know we like to hold like Judas apart from the other disciples and their denial of him. But essentially, no, Peter didn't lead to the arrest of Jesus, but he had a wholesale rejection of Jesus right here. Well, it makes me, when you were talking about that, I was thinking Peter's denial is for self-preservation. You know, he's, he's denying and he's separating himself to protect himself. And I think maybe not only just physically, but maybe that emotional tie, that kind of um, that tie that he has to Jesus, where he thinks Jesus is going to, you know, be this reigning king, and he's seeing that he's not doing what he thinks he's supposed to do. So he's kind of pr- 
preserving himself. And it's really easy to look at Peter and be like, oh my gosh, how can he do that? How can he, you know, deny him three times? But when, when you think about self-preservation, how, how often do we do that? How often do we do things to preserve ourselves, not put ourselves out there because we don't want people to think we're weird or not like not talking about Jesus in front of people because we don't know how they'll act. Because really that self-preservation, I don't know how you're going to treat me after I talk to Jesus about, talk about Jesus to you. So I'm not going to do what I know I'm supposed to do because I'm afraid of how it will affect me. I also see an element of Peter taking his fate into his own hands mm-hmm. almost. So there's this control element that he's attempting to control his, his end outcome. in this situation. And again, I think there's huge devotional implications for us today in that because, I mean, in our culture, like you are supposed to take care of self. You're supposed to look out for needs. You're supposed to behave in a certain way. And so I think this... this and did, people would think you were foolish if you saw this happening in front of you and you didn't do something about it. Right, because all logic would say, well, yeah, Peter, this is how you get out of this situation, mm-hmm. obviously. This is how you survive it. And so Peter takes this... He takes this situation into his own hands instead of leaning on... Jesus leaning on the spirit, leaning on God in that moment to guide him through. And I can't help but think back to the garden and how we talk so much about preparation. And Peter lacked that preparation because he didn't spend the time that Jesus spent in communion with the father. And had he done so, maybe he would have behaved in a different way. And so I think for us, you know, as we, we consider the things that life brings our way, that we have this temptation to act on behalf of God because he's not behaving in the way we think that he should be acting or things are not going the way we think they should be going. In those situations, we really have to remember the garden and we have to get back to the garden and we have to fight these battles on our knees. And we, I know we sing like there's worship songs about this, right? but living it out is, is such a challenge. And I think it's something that we just have to keep at the forefront of our, of our minds, of our practices, of our conversations. So it just becomes a part of who we are as, as the church, uh, no matter what comes our way. So before we move on, there is one thing that like, sticks out to me, even though Peter hadn't been prepared as I think Jesus wanted wanted him to be going into this. Peter had spent enough time with Jesus that when, when he remembered, when God brought to his remembrance what Jesus had spoken, he went to this place of weeping, remembering everything. I, I mean, I feel like in my heart that He's remembering everything that Jesus has done to this point. You know, even Jesus speaking who he is within the church, Jesus told him that, you know, he has a place in his kingdom. And so there's this hope that he had, he wasn't fully prepared. We absolutely need to be fully prepared. But he did know the voice, and he did, like, remember. God brought to his remembrance what Jesus had said. And so... His position is much different than what we're about to see. And his heart position, even though he betrayed, what he did is no, le- no different 
than what Judas did. He did recognize Jesus for who he was. I I also think about this particular piece where he weeps bitterly about it, having realized right what 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 happened, you know, hearing the rooster crow, and no doubt thinking back to when Jesus said, "You're going to deny me before the rooster crows," and Peter's like, "No." Um, for some reason, as you were talking about that, the thought came to my mind of. Like Jesus told the truth to Peter. Peter didn't want to hear the truth, and so he continued on. But then when confronted with the reality of the truth, Peter, instead of instead of putting up a guard even further, he allowed it to, to humble him. Um, and when I think about this piece... Uh, that I don't know that I've ever even thought about before, um, but this idea, this idea of people speaking truth, and then when you see that truth come to bear, what my reaction is, I, I think that this is probably something. If I'm being honest and, and like true confessions, something that I I would struggle with, and I don't know that I would necessarily always have Peter's response, um, because I I can be a pretty prideful person in thinking about this particular situation and how prideful Peter has been up to this point that he would never do something like this. And then it happens like, man, yes, maybe I would have wept bitterly, but I think I would have puffed up my chest and tried to be like, well, I didn't do that. Like, I, I don't know, just this kind of truth smacking me in the face like that would not go well. And so I, I think, I think it's like, man, I need to, Peter's teaching me something. I feel like regularly <laughs> we've, we've harped on Peter for how he has missed it. And I think as I read this set of verses with Peter, where he seemingly is missing it, he comes to the end and I think he gets it. And I, I feel like in this moment I say, man, I need to be more like Peter and, and be willing to hear the truth or if I'm not willing to hear the truth like Peter wasn't when the truth actually smacks me in the face be willing to humble myself and and recognize where I was wrong and how I was wrong yeah it's like Jesus taking the long road to help Peter get to this place of humility but I think that's really a great Mm -hmm. point you know that he had heard the truth from Jesus so much but it wasn't until he was truly confronted with it and he was able to come to this place of of humility but if he hadn't if he hadn't spent all that time allowing Jesus to continue to mold and shape and mold and shape right. and mold and shape and even though he wasn't preparing in the garden like he should have been all that time was not wasted no yeah and so like this is the the culmination of all that time that Jesus spent with Peter and he's like and this is where like I can build my church on someone who recognizes the truth and humbles herself in that situation. It's mm-hmm. good. As we continue into the further into the morning, uh, following Peter's recognition that he had done exactly as Jesus had prophesied that he would, mm-hmm. um, we see Judas come to this place of 
just feeling complete, complete remorse and sorrow for what he's caused to occur to Jesus. And as I sit and I think about his reaction here, I, I can't help but wonder what is it that Judas expected to come of the trial, to come of him turning Jesus over to the authorities was what, what did he have in mind? What outcomes were there? And so I just, I don't know. I sit and I ponder, ponder what he must've been thinking as he went into this whole, whole betrayal, I guess, ruse. So like, what do you been thinking beforehand to even get him to this place? Which is, what did he think would happen? I guess like, what what was he expecting? Yeah. If he wasn't expecting him to be executed, bound and led away and handed over to Pilate for the purposes of execution, then what was he expecting? I mean, I don't know that I necessarily have any answer. I'm not sure that it's, I don't know, maybe somebody really smart could find the answer. But if I think about it, um, knowing that the Sanhedrin has no power over life and death of people, and that's only like held in the hands of the Roman government, and because Judas was only working directly with the like the Jewish institution, not with Rome, I think it's possible that Judas never thought it could even go this far. I think it's possible that Judas maybe thought at worst he's going to get arrested and like detained, stripped of his rabbi title like beat because he was saying that he was the son of God um may, it's possible maybe he didn't he didn't think it could go to all the way to to death and so seeing now that that is exactly the direction that it's going he's like holy moly this is this is not where this is not what i was intending and i guess if i think about the conversations that we have had about judas to this point uh, specifically as we have seen him on his path to betrayal we've made a point about how he made a point or at least matthew makes a point to communicate that judas identifies him as rabbi or teacher only while the others in the same conversation are identifying him as Lord. And so if Judas really is stepping back from this idea of Jesus as the Messiah and saying, no, Jesus is just a rabbi who can, obviously he can do cool things, but he is not the Messiah. So he is going too far in the claims that he is making. I mean, turning him over to the officials to be stripped of his rabbi title so he doesn't continue doing this stuff might be something that he would see as a beneficial thing to happen. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know that I have a perfect answer for, for you, Natasha, as far as that, like exactly what he was thinking, but I could see a way. Well, because Jesus didn't fit the typical assumptions about the Messiah and what the Messiah would do. I feel like, that seems consistent with with what we know about 
what the Messiah was expected to be and what Jesus was and how there's inconsistencies And that there. tension that existed and expectation. Right. and Which could have easily caused doubt in Judas's mind as to who this rabbi really was. Right. And it really would lead, like, lead me to understand a little more about his response and why he's going back to the chief priests and the elders in the manner that he is. Like, I've sinned. Like, this is innocent blood. And he's going to the very people that he feels can like help him get toward this place of repentance. And their idea is to say, sorry about your luck, dude. That's on you. Like that that's your responsibility. As if they have no part in it. He was just a tool, unfortunately, for for them to get the outcome that they desired. Um, mm -hmm. because they needed someone to help connect the dots, and they couldn't even carry out this execution on their own. So they're forced to work with people that they wouldn't normally want to work with, that they wouldn't normally want to have any dealings with, because they have a goal that they want to accomplish. And so, like, I can see, I can, I can understand a little more, like, where Judas is coming from with that kind of, like, the way you've laid that out, Nick, makes it a little easier to see where Judas is coming from in his response to the chief priests and the elders. The other thing that really sticks out to me about this Judas thing that uh, you you started to bring up there, Derek, was is so. Um, in the NIV, it says that he was seized with remorse. Um, and as I dug into that a little bit and looked at some Greek words that there's no way I'm going to be able to pronounce them here. Um, but the word that is used is the same word that is used to um, communicate repentance or turning around and going the other direction, which is the word that is often used by Christ, right? And, and, turning from your ways to come back to God. It's the same word that's used throughout the old. Well, I guess not the same word because that's a Hebrew word in the old Testament, but the same idea is used throughout the old Testament of, of the people turning from their ways and coming back to God. And so I, I read that word and I'm, I'm like, man, like Judas, Judas is repenting of what he had done. And in repenting, he does what he knows he's supposed to do as far as the way he understands the religious system. And he goes to the people, yes, that contracted him, but they're also the people that that he needs to, to seek out to seek forgiveness and to, to seek um, uh, cleansing from what he had done. And, and so, like... We, we recognize that he doesn't see Jesus as who he actually is, and so he goes to the people he knows he's supposed to go to according to his tradition to, to be reconciled, and he is rejected. The very people that are supposed to help him find reconciliation according to even their own law reject him. And, and this was a, a point of conversation around our table on, on Sunday morning where it's like, man, Judas turning to the community that he thought he was supposed to turn to 
was cast out. And that had some severe consequences in his life. And then it made us at our table talk even further about, man, where do we fit in this conversation? I know we often like to put ourselves in the, in the driver's seat uh, or in the seat of like the, the main character. So either Peter, the disciple or Judas, the disciple, but where do we fit as a church in the conversation of the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders in this particular encounter with Judas? Well, and I think especially when you hold that in contrast, we haven't gotten here in the conversation. Well, actually, Matthew doesn't cover the restoration of Peter. No, that's John. Um, okay, so we could read about this in the other Gospels, but we know that Jesus comes back to Peter later after the resurrection, and he affirms him, reconciles with him, right. and then uh, like commissions him mm-hmm. and says, hey, everything I said before is still good. Despite what you've done, That's that doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Oh, We're going to so go good. forward. That's good. And so I think when you compare the two responses of Jesus restoring Peter and then the chief priest's response to Judas, I think you get, you come face to face with the what to do's and the what not to do's as we move forward with the church in dealing with this issue of repentance, of reconciliation, of the mess ups. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of interesting as you point that out, Natasha, Peter knew where to go to, to be reconciled. And Judas thought he knew where to go to, to be reconciled. And the the structure that was in place turned its back on him. Where Jesus, obviously that would be a what if kind of scenario, but what if Peter or what if Judas would have made it until Jesus came back? Like I, I can only play a what if, but if he had known where to go, it's it's kind of lends back to that preparation. Peter knew where to go. Well, and I mean, I'm, this may go way out there, but what if the religious officials would have behaved as the law said they should have in their role in helping Judas find reconciliation? Yeah. That could have changed everything too. Yeah. It's like both of these men... Peter's took a little bit longer to get to, but both of these men went to the community they thought they were supposed to go to seeking reconciliation, and one found reconciliation, and one found condemnation. What community are we going to be? It's messy to be the community that offers reconciliation, for sure. There's no, there's no system, there's no equation, there's no standard like that can define how you deal with all the different situations that you're going to encounter. The only thing you can do is when, when the mess walks in the door is focus on Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, one step at a time, we're going to work through this reconciliation thing one step at a time. Otherwise 
we find ourselves more playing the role of of the chief priests and and the the elders and you know we try to systematize what re- uh, reconciliation looks like we try to um justify our behavior in a situation and towards other people and ultimately we we reject and we condemn and in Judas's case it was catastrophic there's no going back to fix no when humanity plays judge it leads to death when we play judge we we are killing people it's not our job. Yeah. Peter understood that judgment was not man's job. But the chief priests and the elders took it to be their job to place judgment. They placed judgment on Jesus and obviously as part of God's plan. But in, I mean, I appreciate when they played judgment in that, but they played judgment in Judas's life and it brought death. That's what we do when we place judgment. When we take it out of God's hands and place it in our hands, we are killing people. Maybe not literally. Well, as a leader, like I can't imagine somebody coming to me and saying, hey, I I made a huge mistake. Hmm. And me saying, not too bad, that's your problem. Instead of trying to look at them and try to help them. I mean, because that's what, what's what we're supposed to do as the church is to help people. And you know, those crises that people go through to help them know where to go and to completely turn away from that is unfortunately what we do sometimes. We're called to be reconcilers. So reconcile. Like it sounds like we always talk about like we it, it sounds so simple, but it really is that that simple. Like be a reconciler. It's gonna look different in every situation. It's not gonna be pretty and neat and cut and dry. Being a reconciler is going to look different for every person because some people's messy is a lot more than other people's. And we have to be okay with that. Like the church shouldn't be a place for it's it's like Jesus said he came for the sick it's going to be messy mm-hmm. so let's be okay with messy because otherwise we're killing people all i can think about is the prodigal of the prodigal son he made a mistake you know he went and did all he did and he got welcomed back with open arms. Can you imagine if the father would have been like, eh, no, no imagine if the brother would have got there before the father. Because mm. the brother would have played the chief priests and the elders. And he would have made judgment. Because that's what we do when we think we, we didn't get our share. Like we didn't get our portion. And yet the, res- the, the response of the Father is to, to love, to reconcile, to make it new. I had kind of a, I don't know what you would call it, but a, a kind of a symbol, s- simulation of this today. A couple days ago, 
I'd given a review to an employee that just had a little bit of concern and we talked about it. Today, she came. She wasn't working, but she came to apologize and to ask for help. Mm. And I was so excited. I was so excited because I didn't know what her response would be because, you know, you never really know how somebody's going to take criticism or, you know, opportunities for improvement. And she, her response in the moment was not, was kind of what I expected, but her coming back a couple of days later and saying, I'm sorry, what can, can you help me? And that's just what it makes me think of. Like, and my response could have been, well, that sounds like something you need to work on yourself. Mm-hmm. And instead I said, all right, here's my, here's my thoughts. Here's what I would suggest. It's a journeying with, and my guess is it may not be something that fixes overnight. It might be something that takes months, years, and there's still the same mistakes made over and over and over. Mm-hmm. You mean like Peter? <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and so, interestingly, you know, we, we started out the our conversations about these two sections, these two sets of verses saying that it was like the, the a juxtaposition of the, the disciples, like these, these two people who just did things differently. And yet we come to the end here and we realize, yes, it, it is to the, like Peter and, and Judas did do things differently, but there's also a juxtaposition of the communities that they went to because they also did things differently. One did seek reconciliation in a messy way because if I'm honest, it would be difficult for me to say, like literally the next time Jesus talks to Peter, he says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. He gives him a command to go and care for people after he had just denied him. That seems like a pretty messy, risky maneuver. But Jesus does it because that's the kind of that's the kind of guy he is. And then the other community, when reconciliation is sought, they say, Man, it's your problem. Work out your problem, and then you can come talk to us. So it seems like it might be the tale of two disciples, but it's also the tale of two communities. And so the question questions we have before us this week. Yes. Which one are you going to choose to be when confronted with the truth? Are you going to respond as Peter did? Or are you going to respond as Judas? But also, on the other side of it, which community are you going to be? When the mess comes your way, how are you going to respond? With condemnation or reconciliation? Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about the church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.